0: We are continuing our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. This is a sermon series that we've titled Free to Flourish. And the reason that we're calling it that is because God's people have been set free out of captivity to Egypt. And so for the first time in 400 years, they are free to flourish as their own people. They're no longer told what to do or how to live by some oppressive force, but instead they're told how to live and how to flourish as the people of God. And so God is forming the identity of his people, and through the commandments that he's given them, he is showing them how they were to live that is going to be different from their prevailing culture, how to live as set apart. And so their maker is showing his creation, and consequently us, how to live as we were created to live. And so this morning, as you've heard, we come to commandment number seven, a command that needs no introduction, and it may be the one command that goes against our culture more so than any other command. You shall not commit adultery. Or in Hebrew, it's just two simple words. No adultery. Much like the Sixth Commandment, I think it's easy for us to look to this for validation and just quickly move on, right? You can look at the Sixth Commandment and say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. I've never murdered. I have no plans to murder. And you may read this commandment, do not commit adultery, and you may be tempted just to zone out for a little bit. You may say, well, I'm single, so this doesn't really apply to me. Or you may say, well, I don't plan to do this, and I never have, so I don't really need to pay attention But like every other command that we've seen in this series, we can know that this command applies to every single one of us, married or single, man or woman, adult or even teenager. And so what I would like to do is I want to read our passage, our brief sentence, and then I want to take a few seconds just to quiet our hearts. And then I want to pray that we would have courage to stay engaged and to see God's great gift to us as it applies to sex and marriage. And so here's what I want to do. There's a tradition in the church that I like to do from time to time whenever you come to more difficult passages, more difficult ones to understand or to get your head around or to believe that's actually scripture. And so oftentimes one of the traditions is after reading scripture, the reader will say, this is the word of the Lord, and then the congregation will respond, thanks be to God. And so we're going to do that, and then we're going to take a few seconds to just quiet our hearts, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to consider God's Word together. And so our passage this morning comes from Exodus 20, verse 14, and it reads, You shall not commit adultery. This is the Word of the Lord. Father, this indeed is your word. And you tell us regarding your word um, that it does not return empty, but it accomplishes that for which you intend. It's easy to read these few words, these two Hebrew words, and to just move on or to think about other people and the ways that we've been hurt by adultery and the way ways that we've been wounded in marriages, by our own marriages, by other marriages, and sex. And so it's hard to stay engaged in a passage like this. But Father, I pray that you would open um, our ears to hear, our hearts to understand, and our minds to comprehend what you're saying here, Um, that you would give us the courage to listen and to ask tough questions about our own hearts, our own minds, and even our own sexuality. Um, Father, I know that you bring your word to life through the power of your Holy Spirit, and I would ask you to do so now. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, I do want to acknowledge out of the gate, as we considered this subject, that it's enormous. And there's no way that I can cover it um, just this morning for a couple of reasons. One, I know that I've got your attention span for about 30 minutes max. And so there's way too much for me to get into here in just 30 minutes. But the second reason I know I can't get into it here is because it's summertime and we don't have children's worship. And so thankfully for an email that went out, we don't have as many little ears in this room, but I know that we have more so than normal. And so I want to be really um, sensitive to that. But I'll say this. If anything we talk about this morning, anything stirs with you, anything that moves in your heart, and if there's anything you would like to talk about more, or if you have questions about what we're going to discuss this morning, I would love to talk with, them, with you about them offline. But at the same time, we can't avoid the subject of sex as a church altogether, which sadly is what many churches have done over the centuries. You shall not commit adultery is one of the ten. It's in the Ten Commandments when God in his providence wrote himself with his own hand as Ten Commandments, he thought that this was important enough for us to understand. And so God himself brought the subject of sex into the Ten Commandments. Going back to our series title, Free to Flourish, we can know that if we view marriage and sex as God intended, then our lives will go better for us. And not just for our own individual lives, but for our, our marriages and also for our community as well. But before we consider God's plan for sex and marriage, it would be helpful to understand and notice the cultural norms around these subjects so that we can see how truly radical and countercultural the biblical teaching is regarding sex and marriage. And just so you know, I've now said sex more than any other sermon that I've ever preached in my entire career. So, and I'm not done. Well, I think it's pretty easy to guess how our current culture views marriage. Um, just a few couple of years ago, the United States Census Bureau uh, came out and said that 35 to 50 percent of all first marriages end in divorce. Second marriages are even higher at a divorce rate of 60 to 70 percent. Most of the divorces occur in the first five years of marriage, and the top three reasons are lack of communication leading the way, adultery, our subject number two, and then abuse. In 2019, there were 827,261 registered divorces, and since 2000, there have been over 8 million divorces in our country alone. Even people that identify as Christian and are involved in their local church, the divorce rate is much lower, but still one out of every three Christian marriages will end in divorce. So those stats are alarming, they, but they should not surprise us because every single one of us in this room this morning have been affected by di- divorce in some way. Maybe you have been through a divorce personally, or maybe your parents or a sibling or a friend. Everyone in here knows someone who has been divorced, and everyone in here has at some point gone to church with someone who is divorced. And so what this shows us is that our society holds a very low view of marriage. And really, our culture feels the same way about sex. Because if you think about it, our culture both overvalues and undervalues sex. Well, how does our culture overvalue sex? Well, sex is everywhere. Our culture tells us that we are defined by what we do or don't do when we're not wearing any clothes. And because of this, we are inundated with sex every day. One commentator made this observation, and this was written eight years ago, and so I doubt it's gotten any better. But this is what Philip Riken wrote. He said, with all the encounters and innuendos, the average American views sexual material more than 10,000 times a year. And by a ratio of more than 10 to 1, the couplings on television involve sex outside of marriage. This is because, as one producer explained, married or celibate characters aren't as much fun. Consider as well the vast pornography industry, the video stores, strip clubs, the phone lines, the cable channels. And consider the way sex is used to sell, the soft pornography of the advertising industry. The point is, in our culture and society, sex is everything. It completely dominates our Western culture. In fact, our culture tells us that this is the most important thing about us. It's everywhere. But at the same time, our society undervalues sex as well. And the reason is because we are told as long as there is mutual consent, you can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want, in or out of marriage. Because after all, the goal of our culture is to be happy right and so oftentimes we look for it in our sexuality so we live in a very sexually confused world we live in a world that tells us that sex is only about consumption consuming it personally treating it like it's food right if you're hungry you need to eat and so you have if you have sexual desires you need to feed them as well it's just what you do and so this morning we have a gift from our creator Because God tells us and shows us how he intends for these things to work. And so this morning, we're going to consider three things, and this is the outline in your bulletin. We're going to ask what this command teaches us about sex, what this commandment teaches us about God, and then how this command can inform our community. And so let's look at our first point, what this commandment teaches us about sex. So the first thing I want to acknowledge out of the gate, and I don't even know if this is the most obvious or the least obvious, but sex is a good thing. God designed it, and he likes it for our enjoyment, for our flourishing, but also for his glory. Now, you may hear that, and you may think, well, that makes no sense to me at all, because I grew up hearing that sex is shameful and bad. I think in a lot of ways, we think that God views sex as Meemaw views sex from the show, The Office. So Meemaw is Pam's grandmother, and Jim and Pam are getting married, and before they got married, Pam got pregnant. And we're about to learn that every analogy eventually breaks down, and this one's going to break down as well. But in 2009, in an episode episode called Niagara, we're introduced to Meemaw at Jim and Pam's rehearsal, dinner, and wedding. And a few of Jim and Pam's friends and family knows that she is pregnant, but they're not allowed to say anything because Meemaw would get really, really, really upset. And so Jim is toasting Pam at the rehearsal dinner, and he accidentally lets the cat out of the bag. And so Michael Scott jumps up, and he tries to smooth it over, and it goes terribly. And so they finally shut Michael down. But then Michael decides to double down, And go to Meemaw's hotel room and continue the conversation. And so this is a little bit of how the conversation goes. Michael says, may I? Uh, Here's the thing, um, Meemaw. I, I think you need to chill out about this whole Pam getting pregnant thing. It's not 1890 anymore. It's modern day. And Meemaw says, people are like cats and dogs these days. Exactly. This used to be such a great country, Michael Scott says, I know. Meemaw says, I don't know what happened to it. And Michael says, they're going to name the baby after you, you know. They're going to call it Meemaw. (laughs) Meemaw says, you mean Sylvia? And Michael says, yes. And if it's a boy, they're going to call him Silvio. So obviously that analogy completely breaks down, but I do think it's oftentimes how we approach this command, right? We here do not commit adultery, or we read anything in the Bible that speaks to our sexuality, and we take the stance of Michael Scott and we say, listen, it's not in 1890 anymore. These are modern times. The biblical view of sexuality is outdated. Things are just different now. And when we think about God, we think he's like Mimal and that he's prudish and strict and begrudging when it comes to sex. But this could not be any further than the truth. Because listen to how God views sex and marriage in Proverbs 5, starting in 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And now I'm just going to stare at my notes for the rest of this sermon. But God uses the language of thirst as he talks about sex. It is a God-given gift and a thirst that can be satisfied with flowing water from your own well. It's talking about with your own spouse for you alone. He says, let your fountain be blessed with the wife of your youth, and then he gives some very descriptive words about how you can do that. This is not Mimal's views on sex. This is not prudish. This is not outdated. God describes it as life-giving, passionate, and beautiful. But there's something else that this command teaches us about sex, and it is the most obvious, and the, the uh, Proverbs 4 picks up on this in verse 16 and 17. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. This is talking about sex outside of marriage, scattering your springs, letting your springs flow into the street. He says, let them be for you alone and not for strangers with you. Why do you think the command is, do not commit adultery? Adultery is sex outside of the covenant of marriage. And God says, for you to flourish in every way, personally, your marriage is your community, no adultery. And this is where God does agree with Memaw. And we see this going all the way back to Genesis and Genesis 2, in the creation of the heavens and the earth. On the first uh, first five days of creation, when God creates all the heavens and the earth, he says that it is good. But on the sixth day, he created Adam, and he did not say it's good. Instead, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. It's the first time when God calls his creation not good. And so he creates Eve for Adam and Adam for Eve and for each other. And this is what we're told in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And then listen to this recap of God's creation after the sixth day. And God said, saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. In creation, one of the first things that, take, that takes place is a marriage. One in which the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, are naked and unashamed. And this is where God intends for us to flourish in our sexuality. Keeping sex within the covenant of marriage. Because it's only in the covenant of marriage that you can truly and literally be naked and unashamed in every way. Because in marriage, not only do you say, I will share with you my body... But you say, I will share with you my finances, my fears, my inadequacies, my children. This is the level of commitment that God intends for sex to be intended in the covenant of marriage. Jen Wilkin, in her book, Ten Words to Live By, commented on this reality. She said, Sexual desire inside the marriage covenant is an expression of mutual love. It is a rightly ordered desire. Sexual desire outside of marriage is an expression of lust. It's a disordered desire. Sex inside of marriage is about commitment and vulnerability, vulnerability, the letting down of our guard, and the literal joining of two fleshes into one. Sex outside of marriage is about consumption and vulgarity, the acquisition of pleasure in the short term, the thin appearance of love, the joining of what God has not joined Sexual lust is many unsavory things, but it is certainly the temptation to avoid vulnerability and commitment. She goes on to point out that how else would pornography establish such a foothold unless it promised the gratification of desires without vulnerability or commitment? She mentioned that it whispers, pornography whispers the same lie that was whispered to Adam and Eve in the garden. It won't hurt just to look pointing out that porn abandons any pretense of consensual union and celebrates the degradation of another. And so what we can learn about sex from this command is that God holds it in the highest regard. And for us to flourish sexually, it has to be kept within the confines of the covenant relationship of marriage. And if we don't, and if it isn't, the God-given thirst that we have will never be quenched. We will be left thirsty, and I know that some of you know this to be true. Sex outside of, out of marriage is a promise that never actually delivers what we need. It only ever betrays us. But what can this command teach us about God? Because we know that all of these commands were a reflection of God's character, and so in following his commands, we are actually following him. And so we can know that in this command, no adultery, we can learn things about him, who he is, and his character. The seventh command is an invitation to intimacy. And it reflects our God as an intimate God, one who loves us and delights in us. He isn't disconnected or disinterested, but he's interested in everything about us, even the most intimate things. It's in the gospel that we can experience perfect nakedness without shame, because God knows everything about you, everything. He knows more about you than you know about yourself, but he delights in you. He loves everything about you. In a sense, sex is a signpost that is telling us of what is to come, that there is something greater coming. It's something that we can experience here on earth, the intimacy, the closeness, the commitment that points to an even greater intimacy, a greater closeness, a greater commitment that we're going to experience in eternity with our God in heaven. Why do you think the, that the most common metaphor to describe God's relationship with us is that of a husband and a wife? Marriage is given to us by God to point us to the love and acceptance that is available in the gospel. And not only that, just as sex is to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage, we can know, too, that God is not some God of consumption. He's not a God of vulgarity. He's not a God who uses us, but he is a God who is eternally giving of himself since creation and all throughout the end. He is a God of covenants, promises that say, I am your God, you are my people, and I'm not going anywhere. A few years ago, there was an article titled, The Marriage Covenant, a biblical study on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And this is what was written. To help his people understand and accept the unrelenting nature of his covenant of love, the Old Testament God often uses the metaphor of the husband-wife relationship. The obvious reason is that the marriage covenant characterized by love, compassion, and faithfulness fittingly exemplifies God's covenant relationship with his people. And so even the best marriages in this world and on this earth pale in comparison to the intimacy and love that we will eventually enjoy with God himself. Sex and marriage are just foretastes of what is to come, the love and commitment that is promised to us in the gospel. And so we've learned things about God through this commandment, that he's an intimate God, that he desires to be intimate with us, that that he's a covenant God that will never leave us or forsake us, and that sex is a gift given to us in marriage to point to the ultimate consummated relationship that we're going to enjoy with God one day. Now, hundreds of years later, after God spoke these commands, Jesus came and revealed to us what this command shows us about ourselves, especially in relation to what we can learn about God. And this is in Matthew 5. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Just let that sink in, what Jesus said there. I came across three quotes this week that I want to read because I think it gets uh, across and unpacks Jesus' words better than I could ever could. This is first from Kevin DeYoung. The phrase, with lustful intent, verse 28, uh, translates the Greek word epithemeo, which means desire to covet or to long for. Noticing that someone of the opposite sex is pretty or handsome is not a sin. The sin is when the noticing becomes epithemeo, when the recognition becomes desire, coveting, linger, lingering, and lust. Adultery, in other words, is a matter of the heart. Ed Clowney wrote this, For even a Christian who has lived a pure life in the sense just mentioned cannot stand before Christ's demand for purity. What husband has not looked at another woman and lusted? What wife has not thought, why did God give me this husband? Would I have not been happier with another? What spouse, male or female, has not dreamed of using his or her body to impress or to manipulate? What single has not been tempted to idealize a long for marriage partner rather than trusting God for the sufficiency of his love? And if our fidelity in marriage and sexuality is weak, what hope do we have of standing pure in fidelity to our Savior? We hear what he says, and we despair. Who is capable of such purity? And then one more from Kevin DeYoung. He said, he's saying that even if we don't commit the physical act with our sexual organs, we can still be guilty of sexual sin by, our, by means of our thoughts, our fantasies, our reading, our clicking, and our affections. Do I have your attention yet? Are you listening? Because what we were just told by Jesus and what was just unpacked before us is that you and I have all committed adultery. We are all adulterers. We have done it either on a computer screen, a romance novel, a movie, some social media account that we really should not follow, our thoughts, our lingering glances, our manipulation, or with our bodies. It's all about consumption, and we have all done it. Whereas the commandment last week taught us that people are not expendable, our command this morning teaches us that people are not consumable. And more often than not, this is where we live on a daily basis, consuming the relationships in our lives, thinking that they will give us what we need most. We do it with everyone. But make no mistake, our adultery doesn't stop there. As I mentioned earlier, the most command metaphor in the Bible about God's relationship with us is that of a marriage. And more often than not, we are described as a wayward wife who has forsaken her husband. One of the more famous examples of this in Scripture comes from the book Hosea. In fact, there was a book a few years ago called Redeeming Love that was modeled after the relationship between Hosea and his wife Gomer, and then it was made into a movie of the same name just a couple of years ago. But Hosea was a prophet who was called by God to go to his people and prophesy on their sin and unfaithfulness. God told Hosea, I want you to go to my people and tell them that they have forsaken their first love they have left me to pursue other lovers in the same way that an unfaithful wife forsakes her husband. But then he drops a bomb. He tells Hosea, so that you will understand this, so that you will understand the depth of the betrayal and abandonment and hurt that I have felt, I want you to go marry Gomer. And this woman will be unfaithful to you for your entire marriage. So much so that she's going to bring three kids into this marriage, two of which are not yours. But I want you to stay married to her so that you can know the reality of the message that I want you to bring to my people. And so again, in this analogy, we are not the faithful husband. We are not Hosea. We are Gomer, the adulterous spouse. We are the spouse who is not faithful. We are the ones who break our part of the covenant. We are the ones who go running after other lovers all the time. But God doesn't stop pursuing. He is completely faithful, and he never stops loving us or being faithful to us. And we see this theme run throughout the entire Bible. Until the day that God himself put flesh on the person of Jesus Christ and came to this earth to keep the covenant, the one that we break, to keep it on our behalf, to make sure that we would never be separated from God. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 5. He said this, going back to the Genesis account, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then what does he say about this thing that was written thousands of years ago? He says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is what it's all about. This is what this commandment is. And this is what it te- sex teaches us about God. It teaches us that sex is more, sex is about more than sex. It's the intimacy and the love that we were made for. But the mystery is we can only find it in God. And what really changes us is when we see that, when we experience that, when we experience God's love and intimacy with Him, especially in the places, our personal places, of shame and brokenness. Even in our own sexual sin and struggles, when we experience something like the woman who was caught in adultery in John eight, now you may or may not know the story, but Jesus is in the middle of the teaching. He's in the middle of teaching in the in the temple, and all of a sudden, the Pharisees storm in, just completely interrupt him, and they bring this woman they've just caught in an adulterous affair. And they know the law, and so they say, Jesus, we just caught this woman committing adultery, so we should stone her, right? And there's so much going on in their hearts at this time, so much sin, self-righteousness. And also, where was the man? Like She was caught in the act of adultery, but there's no man. It's just this woman who's put on trial. Just imagine how she feels. The shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, the self-contempt. But what does Jesus do in this moment? Does he pile on her shame? Does she call her derogatory terms? Does he ostracize her for her sinful behavior? No. Instead, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. And they all begin to leave. And once they've left, he asks her, who condemns you? And she says, no one. And he says, I see you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more to be able to move from seeing people of objects as objects to be consumed, to subjects to cherish, we have to be seen too by Jesus in the midst of our sexual sin and brokenness. We have to look to him and hear his words of no condemnation and hear his words of grace. Wherever you are in your sexuality, Jesus looks at you And if you look to Him in faith, if you turn your eyes towards Him, He looks at you and He says, I see you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. We have all committed adultery, whether it's in our thoughts, with our eyes, with our hearts, or even with our bodies. But adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It can be redeemed. If you turn in repentance to Jesus, he says those words to you, I see you, I do not condemn you, you are forgiven. But then he says, go and sin no more. And let me tell you this, if you are a victim of adultery, if someone has sinned sexually against you, the same grace is available to you. Again, remember the metaphor, God knows what you've gone through. He knows the betrayal that you felt. He knows the shame that you felt, but Jesus died for that offense, and just like Jesus, even if something inside of you feels dead, you can live again. Your broken heart can be healed. That's the miracle of grace, and that's the power of the gospel, and that's what changes us. Here in the command, do not commit adultery does not change anything about us. It may change our behavior, but it does not change our heart The thing that changes our heart is the gospel, is Jesus Christ, because Jesus is who meets our deepest desires. So take them to him. As great as sex is, it's only meant to point us to the deepest relationship of love and connection that we could ever want with Jesus, not with anybody here on earth, but with Jesus. We get to taste it now, but one day we will have it in full measure. But listen, I live in the real world. And this merely does not just make it easier, right? It doesn't make the struggle and the sin go away. It doesn't mean it's not going to be a daily fight. But as we are seen by Him and experience intimacy with Him by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually begin to change the way that we look at others and the way that we see ourselves and the way we see sex itself to move away from mere consumption towards gospel health and purity, towards flourishing as Sheila Ray Gregory wrote, defeating lust is not about limiting a man's encounter with women. It's about empowering men to treat the women around them as whole people, daughters of Christ. The key to defeating lust is not to avoid looking at women, it's actually to see them. It's to see them in their personhood and their humanity as sons and daughters of Christ, as our brothers and sisters. We have to see each other. We can trust God with his plan for our sexuality. In marriage, we can be faithful. We can be self-controlled. When we're committed to keeping the seventh commandment, we become our brothers and sisters, keepers, actually working to end sex trafficking, looking beyond ourselves and to rehabilitate those who have been exploited. We will advocate for victims of sexual abuse. We will work to raise our sons and daughters to understand that pornography is lethal not just to individuals or to marriages, but to the entire community. We will fight against messages and images that objectify women and men, and we will embrace and model sexual fidelity. And the world will see us, and they will think we are crazy, and they will be confused, but in their confusion, they will see the love of Jesus. And one day Jesus will return and every eye that has desired to consume its neighbor will rest its gaze on Jesus, our heart's greatest desire. Every adulterated act will cease. No longer will we objectify or exploit our neighbors. The family of God will stand with eyes full of health and hearts full of light. The final marriage of which all marriages appointed will take place in purity and power. And until that day, Until that long-awaited day comes, we express our eagerness for that great marriage covenant to be sealed when we will hear these words from Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Let me pray for us. God, we are so broken in every way. Uh, and we live in a culture that says to embrace our brokenness and to live out our identities and our passions according to something that is deeply broken within us. Father, thank you that no, no matter what level of sexual sin or even betrayal that we've experienced through the sin of adultery and the sin of lust, Lord, that you can redeem it, you can save it, you can heal it. Um, because the gospel is all about dead things being brought back to life. Father, I pray that we would take this command very serious in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our deeds. Father, um, thank you, Lord, that you are our pure bridegroom, and one day we look forward to entering into a marriage covenant relationship with you, one that you've made possible through coming to this earth and dying for our sexual sin. After living a perfectly sexually pure life, you died for the penalty that we deserve in order to give the sexual purity and the pureness in every area that you secured for us on our behalf. In your name I pray. Amen.